0: Our sermon text this morning will be 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter is speaking to the church, and he has just told them that, that you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. He goes on to say that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, For once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so in light of these glorious truths, in light of all this wonderful news that he has given us, Peter says, starting in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we might look at your word, and we pray that you would... By the power of your spirit in our hearts now, enlighten us that we might see your truth, that we might know your truth, and that your word, which is living and active, might pierce us deeply, that we might be convicted by it, that we might be transformed by it, and that because of it we might be more like Christ Jesus, who died for our sins. It is in his name we pray. Amen. In the summer of 1993, I spent uh, a couple months in the country of Hungary. And while I was there, it was it was on a mission trip with a Christian organization from my college. And, and it was an enjoyable time, but there were some things that made it a difficult time. And mostly what made it difficult was, was the idea of being in a foreign land. And, and as I look back on the time I spent there, my most most vivid memories are of those things specifically where it really was driven home to me that I was a foreigner there, that I was a sojourner, uh, an exile, a pilgrim, that I was one who was not from there. We we had many times, there were 30 of us that were on the trip together and and we were college students and and I'm sad to say there were plenty of times where we were kind of the loud obnoxious Americans there, uh, kind of carrying forth this stereotype of being ugly Americans. And I can remember feeling a a, a sense of, of just feeling really bad about the fact that while we were in these other people's country, we kind of were just carrying our own cultural ideals and living according to them and not living as sojourners in this land, not living according to their culture. I remember a time I went to McDonald's when I was in Budapest. and And you've got to realize this was coming right out of, communism it just started to uh, have capitalism be a thing I think there were four McDonald's in Budapest at the time and in this one it was a beautiful McDonald's I was amazed at how clean it was how, how nice it was there were chandeliers in there it was just a, an amazing thing it was beautiful but but the thing that I remember most about it was when I ordered my hamburgers and my french fries I wanted to get some ketchup and they charged me for the little ketchup packets That's just, how can you do that? You can't charge for the ketchup packets. Everybody knows you get the ketchup packets for free. Well, not there. It's a different culture. I was a foreigner. I was a sojourner. I was an exile. And this was perhaps never driven home more clearly to me than the 4th of July. I remember being in Hungary, a foreign country, on the 4th of July. And in Hungary, like any other country, On the 4th of July, there are no parades. There are no fireworks. The 4th of July is merely the day that follows the 3rd of July and precedes the 5th of July. And I remember this deep longing, this emptiness that I felt that there were not the celebrations that I have come accustomed to. On the 4th of July, I realized on that day especially, I was a sojourner, an exile, a pilgrim in a foreign land, Likewise, Peter speaks to us in this passage here, and he tells us that we are sojourners and exiles, some versions say pilgrims. And the idea behind these words are that that they are people who live in a foreign land while retaining their citizenship in the land from which they came. The Bible, of course, tells us in Philippians 3 that we are those whose citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in light of these things, how ought we to live? How exactly is it that we live as sojourners in this foreign land? Well, Peter says that we ought to live, first, as people who are honorable. Secondly, he says that we ought to live as people who are under authority. And finally, we ought to live as people who are free, First, we look at this idea of living a life that is honorable. In verse 12, he says, We, we are to keep our conduct as sojourners and exiles honorable. The word there in the Greek is and It actually is the word that, that means beautiful. Keep your conduct beautiful. We get our word calligraphy from this. Uh, it comes from the word for beautiful writing, right? That's what calligraphy is beautiful writing. And so, our life story as it is written ought to be written out as you would in calligraphy. That, that ought to be the kind of life that we live. A beautiful life, a life that is, is looked at and people say, wow, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful life? Well, why should we bother to do this? What difference does it really make? Well, Peter says part of the reason that he wants us to do this and that God wants us to do this is so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds he wants others to see our good deeds there's going to be a propensity of people to speak against us as we are living in line with the teachings of Christ Jesus as we follow him just as he was rejected so too will we be rejected just as he was reviled so will we be reviled and so as criticisms are lobbed in our direction he wants others to see our good deeds that specifically we might put to silence the ignorance of these people in verse 15 he talks about it he says by doing good you should put to silence the word there literally is muzzle that you might muzzle the ignorance of foolish people quick side note here on the will of god we spend a lot of time in our lives seeking out the will of god and that's a good thing we ought to seek the will of god for us we ought to want to know what the all-knowing and all-wise and all-powerful God, our Creator, to whom we owe everything, wants of us. We ought to seek out God's will. But as we're spending time worrying over this or that, God, what is your will? Should I go this way or that way? Should I do this thing or that thing? A lot of times I think we miss out on the obvious things that are his will. He has told us right here in this passage, for this is the will of God. Next time you find yourself saying, what is your will for me, God? What, what should I be doing? Well, well, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. God wants you to do good, to do good things, to be about good deeds. He has prepared good deeds that we might walk in them. That is his desire for us. Perhaps you've been teased for your faith before. Perhaps you've been ostracized, set apart. Perhaps you've been criticized. Maybe you've been mocked. Certainly that was the reality in the first century among these Christians, and I suppose it is probably going to be the truth for us as well as we live faithful lives. And yet we need to live lives that give no credence to the criticisms. We need to give live lives that are above reproach with not even a hint of evil to them. That way, when, when people make wild accusations about the things that we are doing, when they are coming with moral criticisms against us, if we have lived a life that is so beautiful, it, it should be the kind of thing when people hear these criticisms, that people gossip about us, somebody hears it, they say, no, that, that can't be true. That, that can't be true because, because I know him. I know her. She follows Christ Jesus. She walks in the footsteps that he has set before her. That cannot be true. That needs to be the kind of life of good deeds, that beautiful life that we live. That is why he wants us to live this type of life. He wants us to live as those who are indeed a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's the first reason. The other reason he wants people to see our good deeds is so that they might glorify God. There is a connection between our good deeds and others glorifying of God. We see it right there in verse 12. They may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of his visitation. For some, their unbelief will be transformed into belief through the vehicle of having seen the beautiful lives of their Christian neighbors and their Christian friends and their Christian co-workers and their Christian family members. Now you might be saying, wait a second, Pete. We're we're a reformed church and I thought reformed theology said that God was sovereign over all those things and and I'm not the one who affects them, but but God is the one who does. And indeed that is true. I affirm that wholeheartedly and so should you because the Bible affirms that. But even so, God has ordained it so that One of the means by which he most commonly works is through other people. He wants to use us for his purposes that he might bring people to faith. And here in verse 12, he calls us to live honorable lives for this very purpose. Not just so that we stay out of trouble. Not just so that we can somehow be pleasing to God in this vacuum that's just between him and us but he wants us to lead these honorable lives so that others might see our good deeds and give glory to him on his day of visitation, that they might look to him as their Lord and as their savior and as their King, and that they might have hearts that will be transformed so that they long to follow after him, to do his will, to heed his commands. Among those commands are verse 11 here where it says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. I suppose each of us has different passions of the flesh, if you will, that are more tempting to us than others. For some of us, it is greed. For some of us, it's gluttony. For some, it's lust. For others... It might be laziness. Maybe it's materialism. We all have different sins that are tempting to us, that we need to be on guard specifically against. But I suppose that there is one area of sin that is true for our temptation, that is true for all of us, if not all of us, certainly most of us. And that is this. We long for self-determination. We desire to be in control of our own lives. We don't want to give up that control. We want to determine our own paths, our own steps. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's part of the human condition. And even so, even though we have this innate sense that because of our sin, we are tempted to rebel against authority, Peter tells us here, that as sojourners and exiles... We are to live as people who are under authority. We are to submit to authority. Now, submit, that's not a, that's not a pleasant word in our current culture. Is people don't like the word submit. It's not something we long to do. It's, you know, what, what are the three things you'd like to most do? I'd love to go to the World Series. I'd, I'd love to have a good steak, and I want to submit you don't hear that sneaking into the list very often do you it means to place under or to order under to arrange under basically the idea is to i'm taking myself and placing myself under the headship of another so i'm submitting to them i'm placing myself under their authority the word appears 6 times in 1st peter this is the first of them and, and it's a word that occurs throughout the scripture in many different senses. Today we're looking at specifically how God calls us to submit to governing authorities. Now what exactly does that mean? If we are to submit to the authorities, does that mean we have to do everything they tell us to do? Well of course not. Of course not. If those who are in power require of us something that God forbids or forbids from us something that God requires, let me say that again, if they require of us something God forbids or if they forbid something that God requires, then we are not only free to disobey that command, but we are required out of faithfulness to God to disobey that command. Now, An example of that would be found in Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before Nebuchadnezzar, and he's told them, you need to bow down before this idol that I've created. And they say, no, king, we cannot do that. And he says, well, if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they say to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O king but if not be it known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up notice they're still respectful they didn't say you're a jerk we're not going to do that no so king we will not do this we have no need to answer you we we don't need to for we have a higher authority it's like peter himself with john come before the authorities and and they're telling them that they can no longer preach it, and they say to them, Well, we'll let you judge for yourself whether it is best for us to obey God or man. Who should we choose? Of course, we must choose to obey God in such a decision. At the same time, we must realize that it may mean we will suffer. Perhaps. We will not be thrown into a fiery furnace, but we will face difficulties. We will face persecution when we make those decisions. We must understand that and we must be willing to be content even in the midst of those sufferings. But we must do it not because we want what we want, but rather because we are required to obey the law of God. And as we do this, we we must taking a step farther than that even we must we must honor those we are told who are in authority verse 17 tells us here specifically he finishes verse 17 with honor the emperor now this can be hard for us at sometimes in our current context i think that would be you know the president is kind of the the ultimate uh, ultimate office in our land and and this can be hard for us at times or or even in a state uh, with, with a governor, we can have times where it's hard to honor these people. We, we have differences in viewpoints as to what is right and what is wrong. And, and, and perhaps we don't really respect the job that these people are doing, whether it's their governor or our president or, or our Congress or whoever it happens to be. And that can be a very difficult thing. And 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 in the midst of these disappointments that we have, in the midst of this, You say, how how can I be expected to really heed these commands? Peter, you, you, you don't understand. I mean, these guys we have in office, they're horrible. I mean, come on, Peter. You can't really expect us to honor them. Let me remind you that as Peter is writing this, as he says, honor the emperor, he is speaking about Nero. The very same Nero that would chop off Paul's head The very same Nero that would crucify Peter upside down. The very same Nero that would use Christians as human torches to light his garden parties. This is the man that Peter says they are to honor. I assure you that no matter how bad you think our current political status is, no matter how bad you think the politicians of today are, they are nowhere near as evil, nowhere near as vile, nowhere near as heinous, as the man that Peter directly had told them to honor here in this passage. Now, we can still disagree with these authorities. And it's not the kind of disagreement like, I like Michigan, you like Michigan State. I mean, mean, that's a pretty important disagreement, granted. But even more important than that, we're talking issues of life and death. Issues of absolute morality or immorality. And we can disagree on those things with these authorities. We can disagree with them. But, but if we disagree with them, how do we honor them? Well, I think we do it on the basis of what verse 13 says to us here. Be subject for the Lord's sake. You see, we don't, we don't honor a person who is in such a position because they have acted honorably. We, we don't treat them respectfully because they are inherently respectable. We do it for the Lord's sake. We do it because he has told us to. And because he is worthy of our honor. And he is worthy of our respect. And secondly, I think we need to make sure that we don't lead with our indignation. There are times where we are indignant at what people have done in these offices, be it president or congressman or governor or whatever position. We become indignant. It's just amazing to us that these people could do these things. And, and we can't believe it. What we need to do in those times is not lead with our indignation. John Piper had a good quote about this. I, I really appreciated what he said. He said, let sorrow temper your indignation. What he's saying there is that that when we see somebody make a political decision that we think is just absolutely wrong, even to the point where perhaps people are dying because of this decision, far more than our anger and our indignation toward that person, we should be leading with our sorrow over the effects of those choices. We look at the example of Jesus. Jesus. We see Jesus coming into Jerusalem for his final week. And in Luke 19, we read that as he drew near the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He said this, knowing that he is going into Jerusalem to be crucified. And we think about the fact that when he hung on the cross, what did he cry out to his father? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. May our sorrow at the impact of sin be far greater than our indignation toward the ones who are sinning. Now, you might counter, but Pete, isn't there a place for righteous anger? Isn't there a place for, for being righteously angry at those sins that are wrong? And absolutely, there is. For just after Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He went into Jerusalem, and Luke tells us that he cleared out the temple. But I think we need to remember this about that. We need to be very careful whenever we are playing the card of righteous anger. As Jesus was doing that, he was not concerned about his own status. He was not concerned about defending his own honor. He was going into his father's house and maintaining his father's glory. And that was what mattered to him. When he was the one who had honor to be upheld, when he was oppressed and he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth, but like a lamb was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Far too frequently, that anger, which could be a righteous anger, I think, has a lot of selfishness mixed in with it. I know it does in my case. Even if I have something that is a righteous cause over which to be angry, I know that there is a lot of self-interest and self-righteousness that is all wrapped up in that. So I want to be clear that even though there are times for righteous anger, we want to be careful that we do not go too quickly to that. because we are sinners we are broken people in a broken world we are not good judges of ourselves we're far too quick to give ourselves a pass when we would not dream of giving somebody else a pass so let us steer clear of this let us let us have hearts that sorrow over the sins of people over the impact that it causes on our world instead of going the direction of cynicism and cutting jokes and biting sarcasm, perhaps we should weep tears of sorrow because this world is broken. It has fallen, and it is a tragic thing. I saw, heard a poll right right on the eve of the election, actually. They said 75% of people polled Said that the economy is in bad shape, to which I thought 25% of the people just aren't paying attention. Because it's not really a, 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 an opinion type thing. I mean, the economy is in bad shape. It's just not as strong as it once was. The question becomes well, who do we want to lay this blame at the feet of? You know, is it the guy who's been president the last four years? Or is it the guy who was president the year, eight years before that? Or is it somebody beyond the president? You know, I'm not an economist. I'm not a political scientist. I, I don't know all the answers to how to parse that all out. I wouldn't pretend to. My guess is that it's a pretty complex thing. There's a whole lot of factors involved in a whole lot of ways. But I do know this. Problems definitely are far more wide-ranging than our economy. It is our whole creation. And ultimately, we need, we need to remember this, that, that whoever is elected at any election, those people who are elected, will not solve all of our problems any more than they have created all of our problems. And our problems do not stem ultimately from the decisions that are made in Washington or in Lansing, but rather our problems stem from a decision that was made in the Garden of Eden, a decision that Adam made to forsake the will of God And there is no politician who will be elected who will ever be able to solve the problems that were created there by Adam and by us in Adam, in our participation in that sin. But there is one coming who will solve that problem. There is one coming who will fix it. He will not be elected by the electoral college or by the popular vote. Rather, he will come with power in accordance to the will of God and the promises of God. And this is the one in whom we need to put our trust, not in politicians, Democrat or Republican. This is the one in whom we place our hope. This is the one. For all candidates are but men and women, flesh and blood, like you and me. But this one who is coming is not just flesh and blood. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom and for whom and through whom all was created. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will indeed reign forever and ever. And our knowledge of this eventuality, our knowledge of this truth, our knowledge of this fact enables us to live as people who are free. When I say people who are free, I think what we need to understand here is free does not necessarily mean free to do whatever you want all the time. That's anarchy, not freedom. But Peter says here, he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You see, he's not saying just do whatever you want anytime. That's not what he's saying. He's saying rather living as servants of God. That's true freedom, you see. Imagine a fish in an aquarium on the kitchen counter, swimming around in the water, and then another fish that's in there jumps out and is on the kitchen counter now, flopping around. Which of the two fishes is free? Is it the one that's no longer confined by that aquarium, flopping around until he dies on the kitchen counter? Or is it the one who is within the bounds of the aquarium, who is swimming through water as he was created to do, as he was intentioned to do. And of course, is that one who is more free. True freedom is when we live out in accordance, live out our lives in accordance with what we were created to do. That is what true freedom is. And that is what we are called to do here. He says, live as people who are free, living as servants of God. The word servants there is really slaves of God. He says, live as free by being a slave of God. That is what we are created to do. That is what we are meant to do. And as we do that, as we take the yoke of Jesus Christ upon us, we will find rest for our souls and we can live as free people, free from the bondage of sin, free from anxiety and worry, free from circumstantial determination, looking at our circumstances and saying, saying, things are terrible and, and my life is horrible because of all these circumstances. Rather, we can look to the fact that God loves us and know that he cares for us, free from having to keep up with the Joneses, free from having to, who, to, try, to try to keep up images because we know that God loves us, that he, he loves us and has taken us as his children. And so it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because his is the only opinion that matters. And he has told us that we are his and we are free to respect authority, free to understand that all authority comes only from God, so we can respect it. And we are free to serve, to serve others, even non-believers, as those who are created in the image of God. Remember Jesus washed Peter's feet on the night he was betrayed. He also washed Judas's feet just hours before he was betrayed. We are free to serve. For Jesus tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give. His life as a ransom for many. And when we follow in his footsteps, we will learn what it really means to be free. We are free to serve, not because others deserve it, but because Christ has served us. Freedom is among the most cherished of values in America, is it not? We have been unquestionably blessed by God. We have unparalleled freedoms and blessings. But even so, America is not the city of God. It is but a city to which we have been exiled. In light of this, we do need to pray for it, just as Jeremiah told us the word of God. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We find our welfare in America's welfare for sure. So we pray for America. We pray that things would go well. We pray that the economy would would straighten out. We pray for peace so that our soldiers might not be in harm's way. We pray for these things, we long for them, but America is not, as Mitt Romney said just a couple weeks ago, the hope of the earth. There is but one hope of the earth, and that is Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And when the Bible speaks of a city on a hill, it is not speaking of America, it is speaking of the church, that church which Christ has started, that Christ is building and that Christ will see to completion that church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And like our father Abraham, we look forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder are God. For there is a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So, we trust not in earthly kingdoms or presidents or politicians, Democrat or Republican. But rather, we realize that if we place our trust in them, we will be disappointed. And if we place our ultimate trust in them, we will ultimately be devastated. But if we trust in the king who is the king of all kings, the king who once came and the king who will return, then, then we shall be satisfied. So we trust in him, and as we await his return, we live as sojourners and exiles. People who are honorable, people under authority, and people who are free. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we pray that you would now take these things that have been spoken about here, apply them to our hearts, and help us to live more as sojourners and exiles should, seeking after you at all times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.